Welcome to the View from the Penalty Box podcast with Cam Connor. Classic hockey stories from one of hockey's toughest enforcers. Episode 12, I'm Cam Connor and my son Chris. So this is part two of your time and thoughts about the WHA. So before we get into that, we had one question sent in to us, and it was what your thoughts were on Alan Eagleson. Wow. You and know, maybe explain who he is for those yeah, who don't know. Alan was in charge of our Players Association, and he was supposed to be the gentleman that's working for the players, trying to get them better pensions, better agreements with the NHL owners. But they ended up uh, catching this guy. He was actually kind of a crook. He was sent to jail. And I think he had an order of Canada that they took back off him. Alan Eagleson was somebody, and you could Google him if you're not taking my word for it. Google what he's all about. But he was somebody that uh, was mostly... He was, I got to watch what I say because I don't know what I can say and can't say and get myself in trouble here. But I think you should Google who Alan Eagleson is. And him going to jail will tell a, a big story, but he did nothing for the Players Association. He was all about Alan Eagleson. Today, we don't have any crooks that are, that are, that are part of hockey representing the players anymore. But Alan did a major disservice to the hockey players, and he would talk about well, I got free agency in there. Well, yeah, you're free agency. If uh, I was to be signed, my contract's up, and I was to get signed by another team, that other NHL team had to give up five number one draft choices. So, in all the years that Eagleson was there, we had free agency. There was only one guy, if I remember correctly, the Scott Stevens, that moved from one team to another because they were willing to give up five number one draft choices. And as we all know, your number one draft choices usually are the future of your team. And then read, uh, there was a book that uh, Bobby Orr wrote. I believe it's called The Defense Never Rests. If that was the one that I'm thinking about, oh, you should see what he did to Bobby Orr. My God, Bobby Orr is the classiest man in the world. Read that book that Bobby Orr put out a few years back. He was... Makes me mad. I'd, I'd like to tell that guy where to go if I ever bump into him. So I have a question for you. So we ended part one with an epic bench brawl. That was a really interesting story. But how often was it that, or did you ever see the coaches fight each other and goaltenders? I've seen coaches chirp at each other. And it's funny, and I don't even have names, but I just remember there's some coaches that I played against that were like a choir boy when they were on the ice, but when they're behind the bench, they're, you, you figure it's Attila the Hun this guy's acting like, right? And so they're totally out of character, but I, I don't remember I don't remember any coaches actually going at it with fans or other coaches, uh, not at all. That's You know, they would chirp each other, but they usually weren't close enough to get into any kind of fighting. And did you ever play against Don Cherry as when he was a coach? Well, Don coached Boston Bruins when I was in Montreal. And I actually played the next year in Edmonton with a guy named Bobby Schmutz. 
Bobby played for the Bruins for a number of years with with Don Cherry as a coach, and he's controversial. And I asked him, what could you tell me about Don Cherry? He said he was a player's coach, that the players loved, loved him as a coach, because he would stick up for the players, that management, he knows the players better than anybody else. So he wouldn't always do what he was told by Harry Sinden, his boss, which got him in a lot of problems. But like my dad says, you got your own brain, and his, his loyalty were to his players, and the players played above their ability when uh, Don Cherry was their coach. And did he wear those flamboyant suits back then when he was coaching, or is that more a Hockey Night in Canada thing? You know, I think he did wear those flamboyant suits, but not to that degree. Now, now it's almost his trademark, or maybe it's attention seeker. I don't really know. His suits were were a little bit out there as compared to everybody else, but... But I don't, I don't really recall seeing anything like what we see today. Yeah, well, they were memorable, at least. So let's get back into the WHA. So we'll continue with part two. So, Chris, I would like to just, you know, I played for the two WHA teams. The one was Phoenix Roadrunners. I signed a five-year deal with them, and they folded. And then I signed with Houston Arrows a seven-year, no cut, no trade, and they folded. So... You know, the teams, uh, that's the only problem. Well, there's many problems, but that's one of the problems. When you go to a new league, there isn't necessarily financial state stability there. And uh, as I found out, these teams folded on me. And that's the number one. I didn't mind the league, but that's the number one reason that I left the world hockey. Because, you know what, you never knew how long those teams were going to be around or even that league. But I ended up in Phoenix. And... Obviously, there's so much in in life that's hindsight. And when I look back, I had a coach named Sandy Huckle. And uh, he's probably a decent person. But as a coach, uh, I won't say anything more. But before I even put the skates on with him at training camp, he came up to me and he said to me, I don't care how high a draft choice you were in the NHL. I'm going to do my very best to get you sent to the farm team. And I'm thinking, this guy doesn't even know me. I haven't even put the skates on. And he's telling me he's going to try to send me down on the farm team. Like, what's with that? So that first year, you know, I think he did try to send me down. But because I signed such a large contract, I think the management said, give this guy some ice time, but you're not sending him down. So, you know, when he's behind the bench, he controls your ice time. So that first year, he didn't play me very much, you know. If it was rough games, again, I'd get some shifts. And, and I didn't develop under Sandy Huckle whatsoever. And, you know, he, he pulled some mean things with me, too. For example, well, let's just say you got to sell the game of hockey in Phoenix, okay? You're charging more money than when it used to be in the Western Hockey League. Now we've stepped up in the... you got to sell this game of hockey. And his hockey, because he was a defenseman, he would tell us, Listen, when the puck's dumped into the other team's end, unless you got over a 90% chance of getting the puck, just go to the boards and pick up your winger. What a boring game of hockey to watch. It was a good team that there was, a, you know, good thing that there was a few of us on the team that could add some entertainment value to that game of hockey. And if you get the right coach in there that could have the aggressive, rough players along with the finesse players, you can entertain and win hockey games at the same time. But he, his style, yeah, we made the playoffs, but it was so boring. 
that he couldn't, we couldn't draw enough people in order to keep that franchise alive. And then the other thing about this coach, Sandy Huckle, when you play the game of hockey, you get injuries and you play with injuries. And I had what's called a pull groin injury, and it goes up the inside of your thigh. When you pull that groin muscle, it starts to ache and it gets painful and you have trouble skating. And what you do to get better is that they will give you some time off. You need time off to let it heal, and then you come back. So I had pulled my groin pretty bad on my left leg. If you tape around your thigh, it kind of secures that muscle. So you're allowed to, you can keep playing, but it's still painful. I mean, it's not getting any better. So for weeks, I had this pull groin, and the trainer would tell him, you got to give him a rest. This groin's pretty bad, but he'd make me practice. He would make me play. And then when you've got the one bad groin, the other one is kind of overcompensating, and all of a sudden I pulled both groins. And I got to get both legs taped, and it was painful. It was it was very sore. He just wouldn't give me any time off to heal. And then the first time we go to Winnipeg, where I'm from, I got my mom and dad, my fiance, my buddies, my family, friends, everybody going to be at the game. I'm excited. Then he says to me, well, tell you what, you don't have to come on this road trip now. You can stay and rest. That was pretty mean that he wouldn't allow me. Now he's telling me I could take some time off because we're going to Winnipeg. So that was pretty nasty of him. Number two, future games when I did go to Winnipeg, again, we had everybody I know there. I had my junior career there. He would sit me on the bench, and not only me, the other first-round draft choices, Davey Gorman and Barry Dean, we would just sit on the bench. I would get no ice times, no shifts in Winnipeg. Uh, many games, and that was so embarrassing and hurtful, but he didn't care. He, he was trying to teach me a lesson or something. He just made me despise him even more because I guarantee you if I was a coach in any league and I go into somebody's city, one of my players, I am going to give him more ice time. I'm going to make sure that he does a, he gets his fair share of ice in front of his mom and dad and folks, and I know it's a business, but I don't care. I'm going to help these guys out. So to see what he did to me, that has always been hurtful, as you can tell. It still bothers me today that somebody would act like that with his players. Don Cherry would never have done that, but Sandy Huckle, that's why he only lasted a couple years as a coach. So are there any other memories about your time in Phoenix, and did you like living there? I loved living in Phoenix. Uh, I lived in Flin Flon, Manitoba the year before. Wonderful people in Flin Flon. They did a lot for my hockey career, so nothing against them, but it's a mining town, northern Manitoba. And when you play in Flin Flon in the Western Hockey League, the closest road game we had was a nine hour bus ride to either Winnipeg or to Regina. The next year, I'm playing hockey in Phoenix, and I remember driving to the game in an open convertible with palm trees and hot, hot out. It was just like, uh, it was hard to even get your head into that hockey atmosphere. But I remember when I ended up going to Houston, I cried. I, I was so disappointed that I had to leave Phoenix. I made some good friends, and it, it was like home for me. But when I think of Phoenix, we didn't really have any character players that I that stand out in my mind. There was a lot of nice guys, and John Gray was there with me, and in Houston, and John was probably the funniest guy that I've ever come across in my life. But there was one guy by the name of Howie Young. 
And I encourage you people to Google this guy's name, Howie Young. He was 37 years old. He had played in the National League for Chicago and some other teams. He was a former alcoholic. At 37 years old, he was built like a 24-year-old. And he would be quiet. He would keep to himself. But for some reason, Howie liked me and I liked Howie. He would always give me attention and we'd do things together. And, and I really, I think, I think Howie's died, passed along. But so when he played in the, in the National Hockey League in Chicago, this is back when there was six teams. It was pretty conservative, that league back in those days. But Howie, he'd marched to his own drum, which I always liked that in people. He was an alcoholic at one point, I think I mentioned. He would talk about how back in the days, they would just drink and drink. And that was the way the guys bonded with six teams. And you could drink and drive. That wasn't discouraged back in those days. And he would start to drive home. And he could only get so far. And he told me that he used to pull his vehicle over. And like on the boulevard is what he told me. And he'd go to sleep and turn around when he woke up and go to practice the next morning. Like that was unbelievable. In the warm-ups, when he was with Chicago Blackhawks, he came out in the warm-ups with a friggin' monkey on his back. Now, think about this. This is this is a conservative six-team league. He come out with a monkey on his back. I'm surprised that he could get away with that, right? But Howie, again, he... And he had Mohawk haircut back in those days, which is just unbelievable. He was a good hockey player, could skate like the wind, and, and he used to be able to fight pretty good. And I remember in the WHA, there was some cowards that would try to take advantage of people that didn't fight anymore, and they would play the tough role. So I, I don't even remember the guy's name, but somebody jumped Howie. Howie was strong, and he got the guy down, and Howie lost it. He was choking the guy on the ice. And then they took him off him, right? So Howie was a little bit crazy still, but I, I, I love the man. And he, Howie was also in the movie called None But the Brave, which also starred Frank Sinatra and Clint Walker. Google that, None But the Brave. I don't know how he got that part, but he did a good job. He was somebody I never forgot. And he lived on the Navajo reservation outside of Phoenix with Navajo people. And again, at that time, he had stopped drinking. And what an interesting character. And I know that he'd wasted a lot of his money away, and he wasn't that financially secure. And I lost track of Howie. And one time I was going through, I think it was Atlanta Airport, and there's Howie walking towards me. And he's got a black eye, and his nose is pushed over. And, you know, he was, I don't know, I'm going to say, I'm guessing, you're in his 40s now. Trying to make a buck, and he was playing in some no-name league, just trying to make a buck, and he was getting beat up. But that's what he had to do to put food on the table. So, Howie, I love you, man, and you were somebody I'll never forget. So, just looking up Howie Young, because I also Googled him when you recommended that, that he passed away November 24th in 1999 at the age of 62. Wow. And he ended his career in a smaller league in the PA or in the ACHL. I don't even know what Pacific <laughs> Hockey League. That's what that is. Pacific Hockey League. And then ACHL. And then his last wow. was the Flint Spirits in the IHL in 1985. So he yeah. he kept trucking along. But yeah, so he... Yeah. Like he's got, I think, like I don't know when he started, but I mean, Google Howie. They broke the mold with Howie. I love the man. He was an honest fella. He came to work every day, gave it his best, and what a character he was. 
And then, you know, just again, I just like to say roughly a little bit about Houston Arrows. Okay, so enough about So Phoenix. how long did you play for Phoenix? Two years? I played two years with them and then... Uh, you got traded? Then I ended up, you know, they were having financial difficulties and I actually got taken advantage of. I made a hundred ground, 100,000 my second year and they came up to me, the management there, and he said, Cam, you know... You make a hundred thousand this year, and I was single, so I, I didn't, and I was naive. And he said, "Well, you know what? How about if we just pay you fifty thousand this year, and we'll put everything in writing, and at the end of the season, or the start of the next season, we'll give you your fifty thousand. We've just overspent this year." Well, I'm a little wiser today. I would have said, "Hell no! Give me my fifty grand. That's your problem." But I said, "Well, you know, if I can help you guys, sure. Just pay me fifty thousand." And my agent, you know, put the legal documents together. When that team ended up folding, they still owed me 50000 So what they said to me was, we haven't declared bankruptcy yet. So what we would do is if you're going to take us to court, then we'll let you have all your court costs. And yeah, we owe you the money, but we'll just declare bankruptcy and you'll get nothing. And you'll have all the different lawyer fees and court costs. And so, again, I'm a little smarter today. But So what I ended up doing was settling out of court for 33 cents on the dollar. So I played there. But, again, have I ever learned a lot of lessons in life? And it's always cost me money. So then you, you got traded to Houston. And were you excited to be traded? You know, again, I shed a couple of tears. I, I knew what, you know, Phoenix, I loved I love the city and the fans. So go to Houston. I remember I did a waterbed commercial in Phoenix. And so that was really my only possession. I rented a house. So I sold somebody my waterbed. And then I came with my suitcases and, you know, a dozen sticks and my hockey bag and got to the airport. And I spoke before about Bill Deneen, who was the coach and general manager. I think he was, I'm not sure, maybe not general manager, but he was the coach. You're not ever going to find a finer man than Bill. I just have, can't say enough about the man and his family and his kids and all his boys. Just all turned out wonderful. I remember landing and he's at the airport to pick me up at nighttime. I've got all, you know, at the baggage check, I'm picking up my sticks. And Bill, he said, no, 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 I got him, I got him. And he grabbed my dozen sticks and my hockey bag and my suitcase. I said, well, let me carry. No, 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 I got it. And he wouldn't let me carry anything, and he struggles. It was pretty funny. He struggles all the way. We get to his vehicle, and he drove me into my hotel. And he gave me a lot of confidence because, unlike in Montreal and a guy like Sandy Hawkall in Phoenix, he gave me confidence. He made me feel good. He made me feel wanted. He gave me regular shifts. So the first year in Phoenix, I got nine goals. Then the second year, I got 18. Then I go to Houston, and I got 35 goals. And I made the World Hockey All-Star team. I was picked up for that. And I owe that to Bill. He believed in me, and I believed in myself because he believed in me. And, and it made me feel I was a good hockey player. On that team, you know, we had some pretty good personnel. Like, for example, ours, we only had one scout, if I'm not mistaken. And it was a guy named Barry Fraser. And who is he? Well, when that team folded after my second year, he went to the Edmonton Oilers. And Barry was responsible for bringing in, like, the Paul Coffees, the Yerry Currys, the Messiers. 
He's the one that found all their outstanding talent. So Barry Fraser, it was a blessing to Edmonton that, you know, our team folded because he ended up there and he helped build that championship team. And obviously Glenn Sather had a lot to do with it as well. We had a, an outstanding broadcaster, play-by-play guy, was Jerry Trupiano. And Jerry was such a likable, happy-go-lucky type of guy. He was an honest man. You know, he just added to the positive atmosphere. So, you know, I go back to Phoenix. We had one of the play-by-play guys whose name is not coming to me in Phoenix. And when we had that bench brawl against Minnesota Fighting Saints, our play-by-play guy, he thought the that he turned off like he was going to a commercial. So he thought he turned off his mic. And he says live, he said, that damn frickin' Connor, he's the one that started all this brawl. And he was cursing me over the air, and he didn't know it was live. So, of course, everybody tells me about it. Jerry wasn't like that. Jerry was just a good, good fella. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, we did lose track of each other, and we've never bumped in. Um, He does send some tweets to me, and... Outstanding fellow. So he was on the Houston Arrows. And then when I think about it, you know, we had guys, and you may, again, if you're younger, you may not know these names, but if you're a little older, you would know who I'm talking about. We had a guy named Terry Wiskowski, who was our captain. He played for Chicago when the team folded. He was a captain there. He was a captain, I believe, for LA Kings. Uh, Everywhere he went, he was a captain. He was a real leader. He wasn't a big guy. But he was tough for his size. I saw him one time get in a fight with a guy in Minnesota Fighting Saints. They went at it in the corner, and a guy named Buzniak, who was a defenseman for Minnesota Fighting Saints, and they went at it, and Terry broke this guy's jaw, and that guy broke Terry's nose, and they didn't, didn't stop punching each other. It was unbelievable. So Terry showed up every night. He fought tough boys and that outweighed him 20, 30, 40 pounds. He was a real leader and a good team player. We had a guy named Rich Preston on our team. Rich is still in hockey. He was involved with the Calgary Flames for many years and other teams. And he is the assistant coach right now for Anaheim Ducks. One of the finest people you'll ever meet, Rich Preston. I was so fortunate to know those guys. We had a guy named Morris Lukowicz on our team who ended up playing for the Winnipeg Jets. I think he made the all-star team in the NHL, and he had a really good career in the NHL. We had a number one draft choice, first-round draft choice by the game name of Scott Campbell that came and played with us in Houston. What a great guy he was, but I think he had a skin rash or some physical ailment that made him get out of hockey, so he had to leave the game a little bit too early, but he was destined to do very, very well. And, of course, you know, we had Gordie Howe, we had Mark Howe, we had Marty Howe. What a pleasure it was knowing those people. So when you knew you were playing for Houston, were you, was that one of the selling points that you were excited about, was to play with Gordie Howe? That really wasn't a selling point. You know what it was? It was, I knew Phoenix was trying to get rid of all their high price, price players. So there was my buddy Barry Dean that was making 100000 plus, And, you know, they, they got rid of... Barry, I think he ended up going to the NHL. I think they allowed him to go there. Anybody that made a good buck, they tried to get rid of you. And so they said that uh, Houston Arrow is willing to pick up your contract. 
you know, I've always been the type of player that if you don't want me, I don't want to be there. I've got too much pride. I did know that Houston was a good team to play for because, you know, I would go into that rink. And I I do remember that uh, they used to boo me in there because I always would play rough against those guys. And there was an article when I started playing for Houston. They said, it's funny how Cam, when he was on the other team, was a goon. And now that he's playing for us, he's just a rambunctious hockey player. Mm-hmm. And so it's the perception and who you're playing for. So I just knew that they had a real good hockey team. And they had some stability because they've been around from day one in the world hockey. So, you know, that's the reason I agreed to a seven-year contract. Today, again, I lost a lot of money. There's things that would do a lot of difference. But Houston, again, that turned out to be a wonderful, wonderful city for me with some really good friends. So do you have thoughts on playing with Gordie Howe? And we said this stat before, but you're one of two players to play with Gordie Howe and Wayne Gretzky. So what are your thoughts on Gordie Howe and his sons? What I liked about him is all three of them were fine human beings. Gordie would give me some advice and I was, I would listen and, you know, sometimes I would act on their advice and sometimes I'd just nod my head. Yeah, okay, you're right. Yeah, you're right. And not do it. And so with Gordie, the advice that I did follow, I got to say, you know, I've got 10 extra goals I've mentioned before because of how he told me I should be deflecting the pucks. You watch him. Gordy was 47, I want to say, which obviously is old. You could last longer in the hockey leagues as a defenseman, but as a forward, it's pretty rare that you get into your 40s. And when you look at Gordy and say anybody else, I would go from A to B to get to C, he would go right from A to C. Like his mind worked extremely well. And it was it was no accident that he's called Mr. Hockey. So there was things that you learned about Gordy. I learned not only hockey mm, insights, but I also learned about how to treat people that were hockey fans and from the heart and how to be sincere and not just to turn it on when there's a camera around. Because I can name names of individuals that when the camera was around, I'm saying, where did this come from? And I won't name names, but there was plenty. Gordy was a sincere person, whether there was a camera there or not. He was so good to everybody. So I picked up on that. And what was he like in the locker room? Was he quiet or was he still uh, someone who was a leader and outspoken? Gordy was quiet, you know, but that's like a lot of leaders. They don't necessarily, we all know that there's a rah-rah leaders and they've got lots to say and, and they say with a lot of enthusiasm and feeling. And, you know, I like that when you get somebody that gets you pumped up. That helps. Uh, but you also have the leaders Then Bob Ganey was the same way, um, who I played with in Montreal. He was a leader, but they didn't always have to lead by doing the most talking in the dressing room. But when the guys you respect, they did their leading on the ice. You watch what they did on the ice. And they led the charges and they got involved. And so they led that way. But when they did say something in the dressing room, it's like if your dad's yelling at you all the time, all the time about things that aren't even important. One day when he has something important to say, it's just another yelling at you. And you don't hear him. 
And so with those gentlemen that I just mentioned, when they start to talk, you're listening because this isn't this isn't them, you know, trying to be the rah-rah guy every day. But when they talk, you would listen, and that's what Gordy was. He wasn't loud in the dressing room, but when Gordy talked, you listened. And uh, he was a great teammate for sure. So at age 47, was did you ever see him in a fight? No. You know what? I, I think um, Gordy... Two things I remember about Gordy. I don't know if we saved this for another Gordy Howe day, but, uh, you know, when I think about Gordy, he never got in fights, and why would you at age 47? But I do remember two things that Gordy would do. There was always, in the old days when there were six teams, they used to have what's called the hip check. And so when you're a forward trying to fly by a defenseman, they would be able to get down really low and they would clip you right at your knees and you would go right over them and land on your head. And so I remember one time there was only one guy in the league that still did the hip checks. I remember this guy tried to hip check me and I barely got out of the way. And when I come back to the bench, Gordon told all of us, not only me, he said, when you play against somebody that is hip checking you, he said, if he gets you, or even if he doesn't get you, he said, you make sure when you're coming down to hit it right over the head with a hockey stick. He said, those knees, he said, he's taking out your knees, and that's your career. So if he wants to come across and give you that hip check, when you're coming down, make sure you hit him as hard as you can over the head with a hockey stick. So that's exactly that guy tried it one more time with me, and I alcabonged him on the way down. And you can't really get a penalty for that because you're kind of out of control when you're in the, you know, you're up in the air doing a tumble. So, you know, he he, he would, he, he, I whacked him and I told him after I skated over, I said, you do that, ever do that again, you're going to pay a price, buddy. And he never did do it again. And the other thing Gordy would do, it's, it's not like today. When you go in front of the net back in our day, holy cow, it, you would take your life in your hands. There was some pretty tough, mean defensemen. And the referees, you know, when I see what they do today, they call a penalty because somebody brought their stick up on your shin pads or some goofy thing like, you get a penalty for that. Back in our day, you get in front of the net, you're not, the puck's not even there. They would cross-check you over the back and knock you down. You get up, they'd knock you down. Like, they would hurt you. The goalie with two hands, you're over. They don't want to be screamed. And so you would really pay a price to go in front of the net. So when Gordy go in front of the net, most of the defensemen, you know, this is Gordy Howe and he's older, they wouldn't cross-check him and hammer him like maybe they would somebody else. But if they ever did it, Gordy said, listen, and he did this, I can think of like six times a year this guy would do it, is if you're in front of the net and you're cross-checking Gordy and you knock him down, as he's falling down, he would shorten up on a stick and he'd whack you right across the face with a stick. And you'd be on, you know, Gordy would be laying down and the player would kind of go, he didn't really know if Gordy did it on purpose or not. So he didn't really retaliate and Gordy would get up and go, oh, sorry about that, I was falling. But we'd laugh on the bench because he did it every time. So we knew it wasn't an accident. But it's just like, you know, if your dog does something bad and you give him a swat, the dog figures it out. So that's what Gordy was trying to tell us. They're going to cross-check you and they're knocking you over. With that loose stick, try to whack them so that it hurts them and uh, they'll probably think twice about doing it again. And, you know, uh, Chris, when I think about Gordy Howe, 
I think about his boys and what an honor it was for the dad to play with the boys and vice versa. And Marty, unbelievable talent, unbelievable talent. He had his dad's talent. And, uh, you know, Gordy would play hurt. And, you know, in his prime, he must have been something else to play with. But Marty had his dad's talent. Or, excuse me, Mark had his dad's talent. And then when you think of Marty, Marty, he was a good hockey player. He was a, one of our better defensemen for sure. He got involved in the game physically. He would scrap if he had to scrap. I loved uh, Marty because he liked fishing. And, and Gordy and Mark. So we all got along because I love my fishing. But Marty didn't have the natural ability that Gordy and Mark had. But Mark didn't have Marty's ability that Marty, if he got hurt, he'd play in pain. He'd show up every night and, uh, you know, he brought his lunch bucket to work. And through hard work was the reason that Marty lasted as long as he did. He, uh, he was somebody that I also really admired. So the three of them, I was so fortunate to know who they were, get to play with them. I'll always have positive thoughts about those three. But, you know, just to maybe wrap this up a bit, when I talk about the World Hockey Association, they had, as I mentioned, the fringe players. And in the league, they gave the old establishment, the NHL, a real kick in the pants by showing up and trying to steal their players or get them under contracts. I don't think you can call them stealing. The players could do what they want to do and leave, leave that league. So, you know, they helped out the game of hockey by offering some players whose career were over three, four more years. They got to, you know, got to play the game. So the World Hockey helped a lot of players. They opened up doors for others. Got some of the players out of the minor leagues to play at a higher level. And I think they ended up lasting seven years. And just for the record, you know, when they do their last game, I believe it was Edmonton Oilers against the Winnipeg Jets. And my old friend Dave Siminko scored the final, the last goal in the world hockey before it folded. God bless, Dave. And you just recently posted the letter that you received about the Houston Arrows disbanding or, yeah. or ending. So if anyone's curious to see what that letter said, it's on your Twitter, Cam Connor NHL. What this is, that letter, it's exactly what the Houston Arrows sent to us through the mail. And it just... Basically, well, you can read just the wording. They thanked us for, you know, working with them, but the team had folded and all the assets were sold to the Winnipeg Jets. And then you decided to play for Montreal at that point? Well, yeah, I had a choice to go to Winnipeg or to go to Montreal. I think I've talked about that. I ended up going to Montreal. So do you have any final thoughts on the WHA? Yeah, yeah. Like I said earlier in the last podcast... The world hockey, I believe, started to change the game of hockey with the Winnipeg Jets in the World Hockey Association. With all the Swedes they brought over, the finesse type of hockey game they played, you could win championships. These guys put up with a lot of shit from guys that you you could run the Swede and there wouldn't be any repercussions. And they 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 played a good brand of hockey. They changed the game of hockey down the road. Um, and so the Swedes, they, they, they've they got their fingerprints, their footprints all over this NHL league today. That's exactly how they played back in the day. And for me, I really miss, though, I, I still I think that the league has taken a lot out of the game. It used to be a man's game. 
And the powers that be, okay, I'm not in the game of hockey. I'm on the outside looking in. But we're all allowed our opinion, right or wrong. You know, I miss, I don't miss the goon game that I used to see coming in the NHL. And the world hockey were guys that didn't have any hockey ability. Yeah, they could skate. But if they're on the ice, they're costing you goals. What I miss is, is it's a good physical game. You play a regular shift, and if something happens on the ice, you have a man-to-man fight, and it's over with. You go to the penalty box and, you know, open ice body check-in if you have your head down. I miss all that because when I go to the game now, there's a lot of people that I've talked to that, that just miss that physical aspect of the game because if you do pretty well anything now, you're in the penalty box. You, it, it's just little too far over in that direction to my liking. I think, again, I think there should have been a little fine line between the old days and the new days. Uh, I, I think that the way hockey was meant to be played, the purity of the game has been taken away, um, and it's no longer necessarily a man's game, which, which is fine for some people. For me, I just miss that aspect of the game. Well, I think a lot of people will appreciate your thoughts, your two parts on the WHA. It's fascinating to see how many historians are still talking about the WHA, hockey historians, that is. And uh, one thing that I would like to ask everyone that's listening is it's really hard to find uh, fights with my dad. (laughs) There's any fights um, on video. There's a couple on YouTube. But if anyone knows of any other ones send them our way we'd love to take a look especially a bench brawl i haven't seen that before so always feel free to send us an email at view from the penalty box at gmail.com and until next time i'm chris and i'm cam but before i go chris if you send in any fights that i'm in make sure they're the ones that i win please